Uh, as you know, it's getting close to holiday time. I saw on Facebook some of my friends are debating whether or not they should go out and put up their Christmas trees. These are like adult, married, boring friends. Um, but debating about whether or not it's appropriate to go ahead and start decorating for Christmas. And, and whenever I think about Christmas, it, it kind of puts me in a certain frame of mind because as a father with three kids... Um, you know, the kids look forward to Christmas, and you start planning things to do. We were just at lunch the other day and talking about how we'd go to a Christmas tree farm and get a Christmas tree and start decorating it. And, and, and we start to think about all the things we'll do at the holidays. And, and it's this time of the year when there's a certain vision of life that I have, of, of, of more, uh, uh, more kind of slowed down, more relaxed, of spending time with family, of, of, of uh, spending time with my kids, of getting to drink a lot of coffee and eat desserts and read books and watch movies and, 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 and just in general have a relaxed time around people that I love, um, doing things that I love doing. Um, and, and the holidays are just the time where that kind of presses itself on me. And it kind of forces me, or not forces me, but it influences me to make certain choices about how I'm going to spend my time. Because I want to spend time with my kids, because I want to spend time relaxed reading good books, I'm going to schedule things a little bit more loosely. Um, when the semester kind of ends for you guys, the semester kind of ends largely for us. Uh, uh, and so my, my workload kind of decreases. And start, start, I start shaping my life around what I envision a good Christmas being. And in general, in, in our lives, we have visions of what a good life would be. And it kind of functions the same way that my vision of what a good Christmas holiday would be. That when you think about what a good life is like, um, how you start to picture that, how, you, how, how that starts to influence your dreams, you start to shape your life around that. And people know that. If you watch commercials, they appeal to you having a certain vision of life, and they want to sell you their product or their experience as a part of that. So if you want to be a professional and you want to be upper class, then there's certain cars that are branded towards you. And their car commercials aren't going to be a bunch of young millennials dressed down, traveling across the country. Their, their, their commercials are going to be professionals coming out of, a, of, of, out of a nice restaurant and the valet pulls up in a Lexus or a BMW or an Aldi. Because they're selling you a certain vision of life that you have bought into, and here's something that you need. Here's something that would fit in with that. Um, if, if, if you notice to, to commercials that, that are appealing to, to, to families, whether it's vacations, minivans, station wagons, you know, things like that, um, they, if you notice that, they, that they are not, um, they're not appealing to the professional, they're not appealing to the person who wants to come out of the nice restaurant and the valet pulls their minivan up, right? right? They're appealing to the guy or, or, or girl, the husband or wife or mother or father, who envisions a vacation with their kids, or envisions a day at the beach and you, you can pack everything in the minivan, right? You've seen these commercials where it's the family driving and pulling everything out of the back and they got the minivan. And, and, it, and it's this kind of life that they're selling you. That if, if you want to be a family man or a family woman and go and, you know, spend the day going to the beach on a whim with your kids, then this is the type of car for you. Because they recognize that the kind of life that you envision living starts to influence your decisions, when I came to college, I had a certain, a, a certain vision of what I wanted in my life. At the time, I wanted to be a veterinarian. That's why I came to Auburn. I came to Auburn because I wanted to go to vet school. Did you, why, why is that funny? <laughs> Just keep going. Oh, yeah, I know. I, I know. I know. I know. I said that. And I, honestly, I looked down at James, and he wasn't laughing. I thought, good, no one caught it. <laughs> He was trying not to lie. Okay. He's been sick. Uh, so, uh, 
I came to Auburn wanting to be a veterinarian, uh, and, and, and so I came to Auburn because I wanted to be a... Uh, uh, <laughs> so, moving on. You guys, you guys have largely picked Auburn because of a certain vision of your life that you have. It might be because you want to be an engineer. It might be because you've always wanted to go to Auburn and be an alum. It might be because you've always wanted to be able to spend weekends at football games. Uh, it, it might, you have certain visions that influence your life a certain way. I'm sure if we spent time and asked you, what would the good life be for you? If you were to start to sketch out how you would envision a good life looking for you, you would start sketching out very, um, many of you have very vivid details of what that looks like regarding to your family, what your family would look like, to what kind of job you would have, to what kind of money you would make, to what your hobbies would be. Some of you don't want a desk job. You want to be outdoors. Some of you want to make sure that you have a job that's contained to a certain number of hours so you have time for hobbies, you have time to travel for sports. Some of you picture a certain lifestyle that requires a lot of money, and so that's pushing you towards a certain type of job. That your vision of what a good life would be starts shaping the decisions you make, not just big decisions about where to go to college or what to major in, but it begins shaping the very decisions you make now, today. And you're willing to do some things or not do some things because of your vision of what a good life would be. And some of you are terrified that you're not going to have that vision. You're not going to have the good life. You're not going to get into professional school that you want to get into. You're not going to get into the career that you want to get into. You're not going to get the grades that you want to get. You're not going to get the guy or girl that you want to get. Right? And, and what's bothering you with that is that you have a certain vision of what your life would be like, of how your life would be good if it turned out a certain way, and you're scared you're not going to reach it. You're scared it's going to be wasted. Now, the problem with this is that most of us, our idea of what the good life is, is shaped more by our culture, by our family, by our friends, by media, by your own desires, than it is shaped by the scriptures. For the most part, you don't really have this grand life vision that you've pulled from the Bible. You've pulled it from sources around you. I mean, I have friends who if they get to go to sports events, mainly football games, and they get to hunt, that's a good life. <laughs> right? I'm not one of them. But they, um, they, most of them, I'm trying to think through this, yeah, most of them are that way because guess what? Their dads were that way. So my dad didn't go to sporting events. He didn't hunt. He read and he argued and he made fun of people. <laughs> right? <laughs> and he drank coffee. Uh, and so... I don't hunt, I don't really go to sporting events, but I do drink coffee, I do argue, I do read, and occasionally make fun of interns. So your, your life is shaped by those forces. And if you're not careful as a Christian, if you're not careful, the world, which can include your family, which can include your friends, which can include the movies you watch, the music you watch, I mean, no, listen to, um, that will shape what you think a good life is, and that will start affecting your life. It will, start, or it will start affecting how you order your life, the decisions you make. And what I want to do simply is I want to look at Stephen's story. This is a very simple lesson. I want us to read. We didn't really read the martyrdom of Stephen last week. Last week we, we read 
how Stephen got in the trouble he got into, the trial, and then, and then I overviewed his speech. Well, we haven't read where Stephen was killed. Um, before we jump into that part of the scripture, somebody tell us, what was, why did Stephen get into trouble? This overview from last week. Water is? My water. Is that mine? Did you take this? You were skipping. So, why was Stephen in trouble? Well, verse 8 says that he performed great wonders, and then, like, verse 11 says that they secretly persuaded men to say that he'd spoken blasphemous words against Moses. Yeah, so Stephen had been preaching in the synagogue of the freedmen. and, and, and he'd been preaching, whatever he'd been preaching had been interpreted and kind of uh, um, twisted to be that he was attacking the temple and attacking the customs of Moses, as it said. And so they bring him before the Sanhedrin um, to, to, to put him on trial about this because this would be very blasphemous because the temple was where God lived and the customs of Moses were the very words of God given to the Jewish people for them to obey and to walk in, uh, and to walk in a covenant with God by following these. And so... They were mad at him. They pulled him before the Sanhedrin. Um, and then what we looked at last week was Stephen's defense. But um, we're not going to read that. But if you turn towards the end, I want you to look at verse 51 of chapter 7. And we'll pick up there. But at this point, Stephen's before the Sanhedrin. He'd been preaching the synagogues. They'd gotten mad. They, they blasphemed. I mean, they uh, um, yeah, perverted what he said and said he was blaspheming God. They pulled him before the Sanhedrin. I want you to kind of keep these details in your head, if you can. And he ends his sermon this way, which is, is a great way to end your sermon if you, if you want to go into ministry. He says, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him, you who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. And so he ends his sermon this way. Some scholars think he was actually cut off. Um, as you'll see, they react to this. They think he was, he was not finished. Um, actually, several sermons in Acts, by the way, this is for free, but it, it seems they didn't finish the sermon. For example, in Acts 17, Paul's before um, the, the philosophers in Athens, and it seems he didn't get to finish his sermon. Um, that he was preaching to them. But so Stephen, Stephen stands up and he accuses them of being stubborn, stubborn of being stiff-necked, of being um, um, resistant to God's work in their midst. And he says, the righteous one, the Messiah, the Son of God, you guys not only didn't, did you not follow him, but you murdered him. And so the Sanhedrin, it says, verse 54, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. By the way, could you imagine seeing this vision? Can you imagine being in this moment before the Sanhedrin? More than 70 men who weeks earlier had killed Jesus these men had persecuted and beaten the, the apostles and, and told them if they kept preaching Christ, they would be killed. And now, now Stephen is before them. They're angry. They're furious. They're, they're gnashing their teeth. Have you ever seen somebody so mad that they do that? That that's the kind of reaction to you? And Stephen is seeing that. We know how Stephen's story ends. 
We know that he is killed, but Stephen doesn't know that at this moment. And Stephen is a human just like you and I. And at this moment, he had to be terrified. And God gives him, as a blessing, just this vision that you stood up in front of these people, you proclaim Christ, and because of Christ, they want to kill you. And now what you see is the glory of God with Christ standing there. The only picture we have of, of, of Jesus standing next to God rather than being seated. And the position there is important when it says the right hand of God. What do you think that that indicates? Why do you think Scripture is so careful to indicate that Jesus was at the right hand of the Father? Yes. So it's a place of honor. And then what else is he seeing? Is the right hand of God um, next to the glory of God in heaven. What else would that indicate? That Jesus is standing there in the presence of God. That Jesus is honored. But what else? Huh? He's welcoming him. I think of the imagery that Jesus talks about with the sheep and the goats, you know, on the right and on the left. So they knew about that too. Yeah. So the so kind of the favored, um, and and they get mad at this. I mean, they they they're furious that he says this because it's clear he's saying that Jesus is there in the presence of God. Yeah. The way I interpreted it is that uh, since he's not seated but he's standing, is that there's a sort of equivalency. Oh what? Equivalency. Equivalency. Yeah. Okay. Like so he's standing next to God, so he's kind of equal to God. Okay, that's interesting. What does the throne room of God indicate? The temple. What happens in a throne room with a king? Judgment. Judgment? What else? What's the significance of Jesus being at the right hand of God and the glory of God and the throne room of God? What's the significance of that in a kingdom? <laughs> huh? He rules. Think about this, this image that Stephen gets. Not just that, that the Jesus that you are preaching is favored by God, but that's, that's certainly part of the message. It's not just his, he's in the presence of God. It's a quality. It's, it's clear they took it that way. That blasphemous. That's part of the reason they killed him. But it's also this message that this Jesus that you preach, the Jesus that you serve, the Jesus for whom you're currently being killed, is in control of this moment. This moment where these men are so furious, they're gnashing their teeth. You get the idea of, of, of anger, so, so much anger, they're losing control. You've been in the moment where you're so angry at someone that you lose control of yourself. That you get furious, that you might shake, you might clench your fist, you might say things you wish you wouldn't have said. And Stephen is in the presence of men who are so angry, they've lost control. And these are men who weeks before saw Jesus as a blasphemous traitor and had him crucified. Who in the last few weeks have been beating and persecuting the church. And he's in the presence of these men who are out of control. And Stephen sees Jesus in a way, in an image, in a form that, that communicates to him that this is not an accident that this is not a situation that Jesus is absent from. That this is a situation that the Father and the Son are very much present in and very much in control of. What's about to happen to Stephen did not catch God by surprise. And it says in verse 57, and At this they covered their ears and yelling, 
at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Well, this is significant because you have a person praying to Jesus about receiving his spirit. Think about, the, think about how this early on, weeks after the crucifixion of Jesus, you have people who have such an exalted view of Jesus, of who this man who walked the streets of Judea and Galilee, of who he was, that they would pray to him to receive their spirit into heaven. And he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, think for a moment about, about some of the details that I keep bringing up before you. Stephen is accused of blasphemy. He's taken before the Sanhedrin, where their false witnesses accuse him even more of blasphemy. He defends himself and they accuse him of blasphemy. And he's taken outside the city and killed. And while he is dying, he asks, the, he asks that the people who are killing him be forgiven for killing him. Who does that remind you of? Jesus. All of us, or most of us in the room, claim to be followers of Jesus. But we want our lives to look like Jesus. That we expect in hope that every aspect of our life looks like Jesus. But do you realize that in this moment, when Stephen is brutally murdered for his faith, that he looks more like Jesus than any other person in the book of Acts. That his final moments, that he's so much like Jesus, that his final moments are almost scripted just like Jesus' final moments. In these last few hours of him giving his life for the gospel, he witnesses very vividly to Jesus Christ by being just like him. Think about the, the, the view that you have to have of suffering. The view that you have to have a sacrifice to say that, that I want to be like a man who was murdered for his religious beliefs. And then one of the earliest kind of luminaries of the faith is held up because he was murdered for his religious beliefs, just like the person he followed was. Now let me press on this just a moment, and this is the main point. I know I've only got a few minutes left, and this is the main thing I want you to see. Do you think Stephen had a job? I would assume so. I would assume so, yeah. Do you think he had a family? Probably. Most Jewish men of his age did. Do you think he had kids? Probably. He had friends. He had people he went to church with that he cared about. He was a leader. He helped make sure widows got food. He had a very important role. Do you think he had dreams of what his life would look like? And the question that, that for several years that resonates, or not resonates, but that reverberates in my head when I think about Stephen is, was Stephen's life wasted? Ask yourself that question. Do not, not, not kind of a church answer. I'm trying to get you to push past that. 
But in your heart of hearts, do you look at Stephen, a man with potentially a family, a wife and kids, a job with dreams of what he wants to accomplish? People that depend upon him. Friends that want to see him live. And was this man's life wasted because he was killed for standing up for Jesus? Because I'll be honest with you, I, I, I look at Stephen and I know, you know I'm a minister, I'm encouraging you to sacrifice for Jesus. I'm called to do that as a Christian. I know I should look at Stephen and just obviously say, yes, this guy lived a good life. His life was not wasted. This is a worthy life. This would be a good life to live. If you were in his shoes, then this would be a good way to live your life. But I struggle with that because I have a wife, I have kids, I have friends, I have things I want to accomplish in my life. And it's hard to put myself in Stephen's shoes at the moment before, that, that, mo- that first moment where he maybe realized that I'm, I might be killed for this. It's hard to put myself in that moment and not think, no, 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 this, this, this isn't worth it. This isn't how my life should go. Go. My life could be so much better than this. Do you recognize that, that the way that Luke is framing the story about Stephen, he doesn't want you to look at Stephen and think, Stephen's life is wasted. He wants you to look at Stephen and say, here's a man who stood up for Jesus, who proclaimed the gospel, By the way, through whom some people were saved. And who was brutally murdered. But but and and this is part, you know, in two weeks we'll we'll come to this, but whose death was used powerfully by God. I keep referring to Stephen as a pivot, but his death is the very thing that sends the church out into the world. Would your life be wasted? Would your life be a good life? If you didn't accomplish your dreams, if you didn't get to give a life over your life over to your hobbies, but you got to give your life for Christ and the gospel went forward because of that. The early church was very careful. Uh, when I say early church, I mean the first few hundred years where, where persecution would break out sporadically and we have letters from them. And there's a couple of instances, this is almost astounding, kind of in, in our church culture, where, they had to, where church leaders had to write Christians and say, hey, listen, if, if, if you have to die for your faith, do so, but please don't try to get killed for your faith, <laughs> right? Because you had so, Christians who wanted to, wanted to die for their faith so badly, they were just kind of running out there and kind of putting themselves in a situation where they're obviously be killed for. And they're like, no, 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 that's, that's not a good way to, to handle that. So the church has always said that, that we shouldn't seek martyrdom in the sense where you just want to go out and get killed and you do whatever you can. But it's also always said that you should love the Lord and His kingdom more than your hobbies, more than your goals, more than your dreams, that you should trust God with your friends, with your family, wife and kids so much that if God chooses you, God chooses to put you in a situation in the U.S. or overseas where your life is demanded of you because of the gospel, that you would willingly lay your life down and see it as a worthy cause, see it as a good life. 
that you wouldn't see that kind of life as wasted. And my question to you, as you have your conception of the good life, you have your conception of what you want your life to look like, does it match up with the type of life God is calling us to live? Has your allegiance and love of a certain form of life become so strong in your life that you look at Stephen and think his life is wasted? That you look at the gospel and think that its demands are not worth sacrificing dreams and goals and even your very life for? Stephen, from a Christian worldview, lived a very good life. Short, but good. And there's no person in the history of the church who was used in a more pivotal way than him. Saul was Paul, you know this. Paul wouldn't have become Paul and spread the gospel throughout all the world if it weren't for that. It weren't for Stephen's death. My encouragement to you is to see that dying for Christ is not a wasted life. And if that's true, then give up your dreams and your hopes and your wishes for the things of God is also a good thing. My hope is that God calls some of you to the mission field, that God calls some of you to a, to a different type of profession, that He calls some of you to be more deliberately uh, uh, gospel-oriented in the professions you go into, and that you love the kingdom so much that you're willing to sacrifice whatever it takes to make that true. Let's stand and sing. <clears throat> Look at that, 25 minutes on the dot.